Hello, Belinda. Hi, Omar. What is this week's gratitude blooming theme? It's card number 28, the agave, representing discovery. So before we uh, jump into discovery and that conversation, I wanted to share this message that I got uh, on Instagram. And it's just one of those stories that remind you why you keep doing these things. They said, Omar, we don't know each other. But I felt the need to reach out to you to simply say, I heard you on Simon Sinek's podcast and the words you shared about gratitude changed my life. I've always heard it, blew it off as just a word. I was always a person that was happy when winning. It gave me a manic feeling, but was noticeably not the same person when things were not going my way. I felt anger and ultimately it led me to carry that anger into other relationships or events in my life. The Latin translation of impatience meaning to suffer. And being able to not become your emotions, but rather name them, I found peace everywhere, began to give back more, and have totally a different outlook. So thank you for sharing your wisdom. I'm so grateful to have stumbled upon the both of you. It's just so incredible to receive these stories. Please continue to reach out to let us know what resonates. It's really that resonance um, that... This week, this season's theme of collective acceleration is about like how do we listen, how do we be in dialogue, and how do we really sort of um, you know embrace what is possible. So, thank you so much uh, to our listeners. And as we begin this exploration of discovery and the wisdom of the agave, I just love this prompt: How can you transform discomfort into discovery? Can you be grateful for the question even before finding the answer? Yeah, that's the the the, the beauty and the beast of discovery <laughs> is dealing with the, the, those that prickliness of the spines representing the uh, in the agave. And it seems like the antidote to just that idea of you know suffering that happens when we want to know. You know, we we want things to happen quickly. I, I feel that in the 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 Instagram message you just read, Omar, is you know, what happens when we can just sit and enjoy the question? <laughs> yeah, we have uh, a saying in our family around this is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. Be kind, be compassionate, and it's just my daughters know it. Like it's just whenever things get difficult. Um, they hate it, you know, but they've also embraced it. Um, and it's just a helpful reminder. Like sometimes it's like, no, this is suffering is a part of life. And so it's, it's not to say that everything is like peaches and sunshine. It's like, oh no, there's some, there's some tough things, but how do we also then take that invitation to discovery? And, and I'm loving the continued evolving art. Um, from our artist, Arlene Kim Suda, who just, you know, was it seven years ago, you know, spent that hundred days, the hundred days of, of blooming love. And, and just, I really feel like not only did you have a dialogue with those plants and that conversation and that allowed you to listen, but as they've evolved, right. From your, your personal project to a deck of 39, cards 
to then digital cards that we use for Zoom sessions and holding gratitude circles to now uh, NFTs and digital art. And I think hopefully not to preview too much, but we may even see some framed printed art uh, uh, in Gratitude mm-hmm. Blooming's future, in addition to the cool new note cards that are playing with the geometric shapes. And so I just, I love that the art is in dialogue and evolving. Yeah, it's been nice having, um, sticking with a theme and then it's like theme and variation in the in musical composition, right? We have this theme of the plant mm. and then all these variations. And um, it, it's really been um, a joy working on this project. Mm. Yay. Yay for joy. We need more joy in the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. And agave makes very sweet things, as we know, the syrup and the tequila and the mezcal. So it's all there's something sweet at the end, even if we can't see. Your voice changed there a little bit on the tequila. I think we uh, might have stumbled upon Maybe gratitude blooming tequila in the future. I don't know. <laughs> Anything's possible. So Arlene, I'm so curious what the process has been like unpacking discomfort into discovery with this uh, agave illustration. Tell us more. It's it's such an interesting um, uh, experience to live the themes of these cards, right? So I, I've had a lot of discomfort about this project in general, like creating art every week, new art every week. There's a lot of discomfort for me drawing new things. Like I've really never drawn animals before. So we have another animal that appears in the art this week. So there's a lot of um, exploration of discomfort for me that is in fact leading to discovery. So maybe if you could describe the composition, because I feel like this is a new direction uh, in the art right now. Yeah, and I do feel like I have a story for this that does describe it a little, and I'll just go ahead and read that to you all. Awesome. So the art this week feels like another folktale, this time about an agave plant, a crescent moon, and a bat. And the gratitude-blooming theme that inspired it all is discovery. In the original drawing of the agave, the plant's thorny edges spoke to me of discomfort. And what could be more appropriate to add a little more discomfort than to add a bat in the darkness of a crescent moon night? It was an interesting exercise for me to draw a bat to go with the discovery card this week. It appeared because I discovered that bats are one of the pollinators of the agave plant. So I wondered, do I really try to draw a bat? At first, I was a little scared to draw something that felt so dark. Bats are not like hummingbirds or butterflies, after all. And then I thought, where is this fear coming from? Why aren't bats celebrated like other animals in our natural world? So I searched around for images of bats, I made a few sketches of bats, and sure enough, when I carefully stepped into the discomfort, the power of the fear started to lose its hold. Bats are actually kind of cute, and even beautiful, in the fullness of the mystery they live in. I have a whole new relationship with bats after the simple act of drawing one. I feel more respect for their power instead of just a fear of it. And I can sense their unique beauty in a new way. 
So maybe the lesson of this folktale is to remember that fear is usually about the unknown. We fear what we do not know or understand. It's a reminder that the spirit of discovery, which also feels like curiosity, can help you step into the discomfort of the unknown to understand and perhaps quiet a fear that may be preventing you from expanding your own experience in the world, to learn to channel the energy of fear into a healthy form of discovery and expansion. I love that you've introduced a bat into the meta garden of gratitude blooming (laughs) and that it had this sort of direct sort of connection to pollination. I think it was two or three months ago, I was in um, uh, New Mexico, the Carlsbad Caverns, which are, it's like 700 feet below ground and just miles of these tunnels. And they were first discovered sort of in sort of modern history in the last hundred years because someone saw what looked like a smoke sort of chimney just like pouring up into the sky and was like, what is going on there? Like, where is this smoke coming from? And and found this cavern opening. Um, and in the evening, hundreds of thousands of, I don't know, it could have been millions of bats would come streaming out. And they're like the size of your thumb, right? Not including their wings. Uh, and they can go like 90 miles an hour. It's like super fast. And they would just like, like a bat out of the cave, right? Like just shooting up. And we can you can still go and sit at the edge of this cavern opening in the evening. And we got, to, it was probably tens of thousands um, that we saw sort of spiraling out of the cavern. And then I think last week's theme, we explored, uh, was it Redwood Tree and had the owl? And so we saw this owl swoop in and grab some dinner which was one of the bats and so it was like i don't know it was just this very visceral experience of nature and just the relationships um of the of these animals and these plants and how they all sort of are in i don't know harmony together wow so many things are bubbling up for me looking at this art and and this uh, metaphor of the bat so one, I'm just really struck by how soft the agave personality is in this illustration. And um, whereas the other one, you really felt the edginess of it. This one feels like a softening into the fear and receiving it in a way that then transmutes it. And I have this uh, book. Uh, it's uh, the Animal Medicine book. And um, sometimes I like to pick cards from there. And there have been a few edgy times of my life where that bat card will show up and it represents a death and rebirth in uh, Native American traditions. And oftentimes when I receive that message, I, I think to myself, what part of me is shifting? What part of me is wanting to be composted for new growth? And I remember I was going in the fall, you know, we're heading into equinox in this in this uh, hemisphere, you know, m- one month away. And 
I was feeling this discomfort of like the days getting darker and we do have lots of bats that fly in at twilight, you know, just all around the sky. And I remember one landing in the house, like literally almost on the bed or right next to the bed. And I was like a little scared of it. You know, this tiny little dark creature, I was like frightened by it. And I wasn't sure if it was alive or if it was had perished. And so I um, just gently, you know, took a broom and just swept it up and, and it wasn't moving. And I was like, what do you do with this creature that is, you know, so delicate, yet we fear it, you know? And um, so I ended up walking around the land and just found a little spot in one of our uh, meditation gardens. And I just, you know, put it in the middle of one of our in the void of the land. It's this dark circle where we go to really be comfortable with the mystery of the unknown. And I thought, wow, that must be a night. That probably is a fitting place for this bat to go in its afterlife to just bless us all in this unknown journey of life to death. And um, so, yeah, it just it's just so beautiful how we're, you're, we're weaving our metaphors and our relationships with nature and uh, and and fearing less of of that darkness, um, that experience, I think for me created reverence. It's like you know this this creature is so delicate, and it, it it's here to to teach me something. And what is scary about that? So, and I was kind of curious, like how do the bats pollinate the agave? Because I'm just like trying to imagine like this very very hard exterior. How do they even get in there? And so. Just with a quick uh, Google search, it says the flowers of the agave only open at night and they smell like rotting fruit, signaling the bats the nectar bar is open. As they swoop in for a drink, bats get dusted with agave pollen where they transport it from plant to plant. Yeah, I love that how it's just there's a sort of reminder of day and night. Right. And just how, you know, you, you can imagine in a desert, right, being out during the day when it's incredibly hot. Well, it doesn't make any sense for either the plants or, you know, the animals. Um, and so how fascinating then that there's this sort of, you know, shift right from, you know, we always like sometimes it's like fun to think about the sunflower and sort of following the sun but then to have uh, the plant flower at night to the moon and then the bats, that's when they come out. So amazing. I feel like there is another version of this drawing with the flower, too, at night. <laughs> mm. Mm. <laughs> well, there's no end to this gratitude blooming <laughs> conversation. It's a relationship. So uh, you know, it'll be fun to sort of see how this unfolds. And with that, I'm I'm really excited to share the story of our guest uh, for Discovery. And um, Omar, I'd love for you to introduce this guest because you actually have a long, you know, history at one point in your life, your professional life. Uh, and so could you introduce our guest for this episode? So Kabira Stokes uh, is this amazing uh, social entrepreneur who really, um, I think, disrupts a lot of expectations. 
she's someone who studied public policy and then went on to found a social enterprise that uh, focused on recycling electronic waste. And the double bottom line was also hiring formerly incarcerated um, workers. And so really trying to sort of think like we should, Nothing should be wasted, right? We should not waste our electronics. We should not waste people. Um, like everything has a purpose and place. Uh, and, you know, if you look at her, she's a white blonde woman from Pennsylvania. But uh, as her name might suggest, Kabira, she grew up in a Sufi Muslim uh, community. And so really kind of very early on was grounded in a very different sort of cultural experience um, and then, you know, she's someone who can actually trace her roots back, uh, you know, to the 1600s and Quakers. And um, and so it really has a sense of like history, um, both things that have gone sort of in terms of peace and 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 sort of community, but also the flip side. And, and so how we deal with racism and systemic uh, problems. And so. It's just it was a delight to get to interview her and explore some uh, things that we've ever even talked about uh, in terms of really how does she blend um, what seems like uh, dualistic things, but really uh, are centered in some of her her true values. So we're going to hear a clip of Kabira talking a bit about how being outside of her comfort zone growing up really has impacted the work that she is passionate about. So while on the, on the, my like Quaker Catholic side, wealth was amassed and power and influence. And on the other side, it's just like, you know, my grandmother worked at a department at the lingerie counter at a department store. And my grandfather was a postman and worked at the customs department. And like just these two kind of American tales, which I've always thought are so interesting that then they meet because my mother and my father meet a Sri Lankan guru named Bawa Muhayadeen, who ends up coming to Philadelphia. They meet, he marries them. He puts them together. He marries them along with all these sort of other, like a lot of white folks who were one Jew, one like of the Catholic Christian lineage. He sort of like was putting folks together, not all white people, but but there was definitely this like mixing of religions. And he named me in a telegram from Sri Lanka. Said the baby's name is Kabira, meaning the great. So I was raised in a Sufi Muslim community outside of Philadelphia in the 1980s. I was born in 1978. And um, what a way to grow up as like a blonde white lady. Um, super uncomfortable, by the way, because <laughs> I went to public school and um, told people that my name was Hebrew, just conducted in a little more and um, ran, ran, ran from that story because it was so weird. Yeah, definitely had to sort of deal with the uncovering of eventually being like, oh, it's kind of cool be different like oh this is kind of interesting oh there's actually a really beautiful base that I can draw from that was given to me in this very unusual at least for the suburbs of Philadelphia unusual way I appreciate how um this podcast uncovers so many layers of cultural identity and lineage you know like you would never 
think seeing Kabira that there are so many facets to her and and her upbringing. Yeah, from the pacifists uh, who were banished from England and became Quakers uh, to you know industrialists, and then you know on her father's side, kind of Jewish immigrants from Poland and Prussia, and then all kind of coming together in this Sufi Muslim community and and named by telegram by some guru uh, in another country. It's just, you know, I think this is why it's so important to understand both systemic challenges, but also never forget that everyone has their own story and their own journey. Um, and I think this is what I've really been appreciating about these interviews is what does it really mean to be in conversation Right, to really listen and to be open uh, to how each person's journey uh, unfolds and the sort of choices and decisions that were also made way before you, right? Like um, to kind of get to be in this point. And I appreciate in her story how she names the discomfort of like not feeling comfortable to even say what her name, where it came from. And then over time, reinventing that, like, yeah, maybe there is something about all of these different aspects, religious, spiritual, cultural aspects of my upbringing that that make me comfortable with that discomfort. And I was most inspired in the conversation and in the way that she was so fearless in her work. And she's going to, we're going to share a clip of her just talking about how, well, how does this white blonde woman from Philadelphia, you know, growing up in a Sufi community, end up in LA doing social activist work in such a fearless way. So, you know, flash forward to I work for the city of LA. I'm like this, you know, girl from the suburbs of Philadelphia. And suddenly I'm in a city where I'm working for the city and I'm reading crime reports in like Silver Lake, the hip neighborhood I live in. And I'm like, what kids are dying? What is happening? happening here and because of gang violence which opened my little you know in my 20s my eyes to mass incarceration and poverty and how it all interplays and racism and the whole system um and me being sort of young enough and plucky enough to be like i want to do something about it (laughs) so so i did um and it was so I started a company as an electronics recycling company that was ultimately is now part of Homeboy Industries, which is Father Boyle's um, organization. Um, and our mission was to be an electronics recycling company, but also to hire folks coming home from incarceration. And you know, I'm in my early 30s and hanging out with you know guys who've done time, ladies who've done time. And it was interesting, the amount of people in my life were like, aren't you so scared to be with them? Or like, oh my God, are you going to be in a car alone with somebody? And to just be able to hold that space of like, I'm not, I don't think they're going to hurt me. Like, I, they just want a job and be able to just hold that space for other people to maybe not have that immediate gut reaction of, <gasps> fear or judgment or whatever it is. We were part of the LA clean tech incubator, very cool uh, clean tech incubator in LA. And one of my advisors there, Bob Musselman, who is just one of my favorite folks when he first came on, I think this was something he'd never really thought about. And he's like, 
I remember explaining the business to him and he was like, oh, I, I mean, maybe you could think about veterans or not, you know, some other folks. And I was like, no, this is very specifically the mission. And over the years that he was our advisor, I mean, he became our biggest advocate of our mission. It just, it, it was amazing to watch it turn around for him of just like, yes, this is an amazing mission. I am behind this mission. There's nothing to fear. Anyway, transformation from discomfort, I guess. Father Greg Boyle runs one of the largest gang intervention programs in the world and takes a social enterprise approach to it. And so uh, he's created a homegirl cafe, which is obviously sort of food and restaurant. You can buy homeboy tortilla and salsa, um, you know, grocery stores. Uh, you know, he's really tried to sort of think about like, how do you create opportunities? Um, and, you know, one of, his great lines is nothing stops a bullet like a job and really kind of just recognizing the dignity of each person. Um, and that we've all, you know, and, and he's obviously a, a Jesuit priest, father Greg Boyle. Um, and you know, one of the things that he talks about, uh, is sin and that sort of, I, I don't even, I'm, don't remember all the etymology of it, but essentially one translation is to miss the mark. And for him, the mark is joy. And so what happens when we miss the mark of joy and, and what is that then suffering uh, that comes? And so we all oftentimes can miss the mark of joy. And so what is then that grace uh, that can extend to ourselves and to each other that sort of allows sort of a second chance and sort of that redemption or a third chance or a fourth chance. And really that everybody uh, deserves a fair chance because the playing field isn't level, you know, no matter sort of what we want to think um, about opportunity uh, and really, you know, being someone who continues to open the door for many, many, many people. I so appreciate all the webs that are being interwoven in, in this season. And it really makes me think of episode eight with Mario Jefferson, who is another person near and dear in your life, Omar. And, you know, he's, his story is all about the defects in the system from a community level to spiritual, religious, to the legal system. And, and here we are uh, really telling the story of someone who does not have any similar background, does not even look anything like Mario, who is saying, hey, like, these people matter. I didn't have that experience in my life. And I still care enough to make this my life's work. And it just felt like it was this passion in her bones. Like, she felt the injustice of that. And she was like, I'm not scared. I'm going to do this, <laughs> which is incredible. You know, it's not even her personal life experience. Yeah, but it's just to be sort of moved by, you know, real, you know, I think challenges. And I think, you know, um, I think it was the Iraq war that was also kind of a, a triggering moment for her and kind of the level of violence. Um, and, you know, it's just, you know, one of the things she talks about is like, you don't fight terror with terror, you don't fight violence with violence. Um, and so where does that love really come from? And And to sort of extend that uh, into the world. And I think the other sort of piece and Father Greg Boyle also talks about this is just 
the illusion of separation. And so I love that she created not a new policy initiative, but a new company that would actually sort of create jobs and and to also do it in a way that recognizes the environmental challenges um, that we're sort of facing, right? Like, I forgot what the numbers are, but essentially, I think it's like less than 30% of all electronic waste um, is actually recycled. So like sidebar note, electronic waste is think about is anything that has a plug. If you plug it in, <laughs> don't throw it in the trash. Actually, that really should go um, into uh, and can be recycled. And it's actually really valuable. I mean, this is the irony of it is that we spend billions and billions of dollars mining for all these materials, gold and a bunch of other things. Um, and then we throw it away. Like we literally like, and, and it's this mindset and it's a really a cultural run, which is like a very linear sort of like, you know, consumption, uh, and just sort of waste. And so like, if we live on this planet and we only have one of them, really, we can't afford to waste anything, you know, um, human capital sort of nature, uh, and so how do we actually create new ways, new companies, new models um, that allow us to sort of uh, see through that illusion of separation? And one of the parts of the conversation, you know, you asked Kabira, what is the, what is the opposite of violence? What is the new narrative that we want to hold for this? And and she talks a bit about just the police system, which is, I think is very relevant in a lot of urban environments right now. You know, what do we do? How do we create safety for everyone in the system? And so she impacts this a bit more to share, like, what, what is the, on the opposite side, what is the new narrative? Well, what have we learned about the police system that it works for what it's designed for? which is control and control. Um, But if it was actually about everyone's safety, really, then what does that actually mean? It's not just guys with guns and women with guns, people with guns. Um, It's about resources to communities. And so peace is, yes, peace is the one ideal but I don't know, actually know that that's the opposite of, of violence. Um, I think the, the opposite of violence is care and resources. Like, well, it's actually what it's, it's community. It's, it's a, it's a fully supported community that can be self-sufficient. I have a cousin who works for a local police department and he works uh, in the community policing division, which is like super tiny. Uh, it's like literally less than 10 officers, I think, that are in the community policing division. And they don't have guns. Um, and they really are in some ways oftentimes sort of the intermediary to a lot of just really social challenges, right? Whether it's uh, the unhoused or just a traffic accident or, you know, all those things were something just kind of went sideways that day. And, you know, he has a, a background as a social worker and, and really he's got 
he's the most patient person that I know. I mean, it's it's awesome to have him as a cousin and like let my kids sort of play um, with his daughter because he just he is so generous and so kind. Um, and you know, I just I do think about you know what would it mean to have more people like him that didn't have guns and that the response didn't have to necessarily sort of come armed, right? Like literally to come into every situation armed, then that is sort of an easy thing that can accidents can happen, right? And let's just be generous and say it's accidents. Um, And, you know, and then I love that her sort of definition of the opposite of violence is not being peace, but really about community and, and how do we take care of each other? And, and, and community, it means everyone, not just some people. And I think it's uh, really deeply personal for her at this stage of her life. I mean, she talks about how during the pandemic, they went back to Pennsylvania and it was a little, it was a very dis- uncomfortable transition because it really felt like her love was California. And to be a, a mother during the pandemic and raising a three-year-old with her husband. And uh, I felt like there was this deepening of, you know, how do you care when you're a parent? And I want to share about what she's learning about the system through her three-year-old and just, you know, the dynamic. How do you create that supportive community within your family. I have a three and a half year old and he's like exactly three and a half. And he's, oh, it's so it. We're so in it as a family right now. His trying to understand how he can control the world and his emotions are so big and he's having so many meltdowns. He's just like a basket <laughs> the poor little boy. <laughs> and I'm not making like a parenting. I don't think that's the, I'm not making that parallel between like police work and parenting, but for him and for us as parents, like this incredibly hard work of he's having a meltdown, he's screaming, he's hitting me, he's kicking. And I want to be like, shut up, kid. Like you have everything you need. Like stop. And I want to yell at him and get angry because someone's yelling at me. The appropriate response, really. I mean, that's, it is sort of an appropriate response, but like the response I, we want to go for is to be calm and steady and acknowledge and give him room for his emotions and love and just keep him safe and let him move through the discomfort, like to come back to that. It's just, he's, he's so uncomfortable. He's three, he's no control over the world. And it's so hard to be three. And I, it's, I don't know, we're so in it here of just how hard it is to just love through that and not cause more harm and have him feel shamed about his emotions or feel that like, he's too much for us and all these things. And I think, I mean, I think that the one parallel there over to thinking about how we would, the the way that we police now, it's just, it's not, I mean, love is such a tricky word and it's so like, everyone thinks it's so hippie and foo-foo, but like the truth is, is that if, especially like think about a child, like or a minor who's committed some crime, like this is a point of crisis in their life. So either we rush in with, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, punish, 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 or you rush in with like, what do you need? 
And that's an extreme, to me, extremely extensive view of what a society is to be able to do that. I mean, I mean, with all that we have stacked in, within our country around racism and around like how hard it is to even agree on our history, how hard it is to admit that we even did anything wrong by enslaving people and by committing genocide when we arrived here. Like we can't even accept that we did that as a, as a full culture. It just makes it very hard for us to actually show up as like you who do not look like me are a full human being and you're having the same problems I have, but you just have different circumstances. It's so powerful. I just, to be able to relate the intimacy of parenting and <laughs> there would be no gratitude practice in my life, but for having become a parent and experiencing all the big feelings from them. And then really them evoking the big feelings in me and being like, Whoa, like this is my heart actually needs to become bigger right now. If I am going to have the capacity to be present to all of this, to then to be able to relate that to, you know, institutions like, you know, police and uh, how we kind of think about safety in a society and how do we make room for big feelings and emotions um, and recognizing folks are in crisis and what is then our response to crisis. And how do we hold love and compassion in all of that and just yeah the full humanness of 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 our experience it's it's a big reorganization it feels like and and not everyone has the safety of a family structure that kabira talks about you know learning as a mother how to respond with love and 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 calmness and and when that is not a fundamental human right, then what else can come in to support, rush in to support that? It makes me think of when I was a classroom teacher in Washington, D.C., and it's my first job out of college. And I was working with a lot of immigrant students from Africa and Central America, and it wasn't a given that they had safety at home sometimes. And I remember being told, you know, we're basing the rate of prison construction on third grade literacy. And that's the most directly correlated data right now. And it felt like a big responsibility. And it makes me think back to our episode on healing with the educator, Olivia Chan. It's like, how do I express love to these children or the people that are not in my family, but to have them feel that support. And that is a fundamental human need and right. And um, so I really felt that in Kabira's words as she was just talking about the struggle of being a parent and what does it mean to love more, like you say, Omar? You totally had me flash back to, I taught for a summer in D.C., um, as well, right before going back to grad school. And I, you know, um, before grad school, I was a lobbyist, public affairs in real estate. And I just was like, I need some kind of transition before going back to school. And so I, 
I traveled um, through South America for a month and then I went to DC and um, taught at this school that was really um, focused on kids that had been facing a lot of challenges and were no longer uh, could go to sort of a traditional public school. And so super small class sizes, like one teacher, five students. Um, and in that environment, I I think within my first day or two, I was given a kid who couldn't even really process his emotions at that small scale. And so it was one-on-one attention. He was probably 10 years old, African-American kid, and he had shot off his own thumb with a gun. And so he would walk around with a long sleeve t-shirt and have on his left arm, because he was shot off his left thumb, he would pull the sleeve over his missing thumb and he would just walk around with that sleeve sort of pulled tightly. And I just remember like we would read the headlines. I'm just, I'm feeling all the emotions right now. Like we would read the headlines from the newspaper each day as just like a way to like just ground in the moment. Um, and, you know, get him to sort of look at what was happening. And I remember I would read him all the headlines and then ask him which article he wanted me to read. And there was one article about a mother being separated from her kids. And he's like, I want to hear that one. And I was like, oh, man, I don't want to read this one. Because this was his experience of, you know, having been in the foster uh, system. And, you know, it was a mother who had been on drugs and her her kids were being separated and he was like, that shouldn't happen. A mother should never be separated from her child and a child should never be separated from his mother, you know, and his mother had been on drugs and, you know, he was separated and just so that love and that attachment that's there, even in the face of, 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 of violence, of abuse, of neglect or whatever those things are. Um, And I remember like, you know, the, the thing was, is I think he had to be with me for like uh, 10 days without incident. And then he could go back into the classroom. And, you know, certainly on the first day, every student always tries to test the teacher and you just sort of hold your ground. And uh, as my mom taught me, you know, early in my first job was to be fair, firm and consistent. So I was like, okay, I'll be fair, I'll be firm and consistent. And we had a great time, actually. You know, we ended up really and he ended up because he was doing well getting to like participate in some of the other activities um but then on like day nine he started sort of pushing back again he was acting up again because he then knew that if he sort of cooperated then he wasn't going to get the attention anymore he was going to go back to the classroom and so it just how we respond to crisis, right? What is that pain uh, uh, that someone's going through? And like, what is then our response? What is that love? What is that compassion? What is that empathy? And what is that capacity that we have to hold all that? It is challenging, you know? Um, and these are real people. And as Kabira said, like full human beings. And what is then the response of our full culture uh, to all of that? Thank you for sharing that, Omar. I'm just appreciating how in these conversations, we we never know what's going to emerge. Arlene has never heard the story of the guest. 
The guest doesn't know what the art looks like or the story of the art. I'm learning new things about you and your background and ways that we intersect. And, and it's all in the, in the spirit of discovery, really. You know, we, we don't know what is emerging in this collective acceleration space. And it is a lot of discomfort. And so for the practice for this week, I'd love for us to actually really be with the prompt together. And, and this is something I invite our listeners for you to invite in this conversation with someone in your life as well. So we're going to practice it together. I don't know what's going to come up. Uh, this is kind of a, an adapted version of a gratitude circle that Omar and I hold together. And, and for you, our listeners, just think about who you might feel safe enough, safe enough in your life to just have this conversation around discomfort. So Omar and Arlene, looking at this prompt, the plant of the agave, how can you transform discomfort into discovery? So for each of us, what is something that is feeling uncomfortable? Let's just feel into that. Where does it land in the body? What is that discomfort? So just taking a moment to notice, just name and notice and nurture the discomfort that deserves to be noticed and cared for as well. So for me in this moment, I actually feel some tension in my shoulders and I think it's a discomfort in today's conversation because there's so much that feels unjust. And I think the discomfort in me is, am I doing enough? Am I doing my part for people and kids like your student and my students and um, just feeling my own privilege and being really uncomfortable with that? And I'm feeling my, my shoulders kind of tensing up around it. I feel it in my chest and my front and just my heart. Um... And I'm just remembering this child, this student. And I remember asking him what, what he did, you know, the night before. And, you know, he said, I watched TV. And I was like, well, how much TV did you watch? And he's like, I don't know. And I was like, well, what time did you start? And what time did you end? And he's like, oh, I, I watched from, you know, five o'clock to, you know, nine o'clock and it was like well, I watched four hours of TV last night and I was like what'd you do for dinner and he's like oh, I made myself some top ramen you know and it was just you know he made himself some top ramen like nobody was making dinner for him that night no one was giving him an opportunity to go to a park a library reading him a book and just grateful for how he expanded my heart however many years later still. I feel discomfort now being asked 
to share my discomfort on the podcast. And it's uh, it's a reminder that when I feel discomfort, I get sweaty palms. My palms start to sweat and um, I can really feel, that's the way I think I feel discomfort. And there's a lot of, I, I think the discomfort that you guys are mentioning just about, um, you know, the suffering of others, the pain, then, you know, are we are we doing enough? You know, like, um, so all of those things um, bring on a whole other level of discomfort for me as well. Um, and I don't, I think that's part of the discomfort is we don't know the answer. <laughs> we don't know the answer to that. And we don't know, we don't know if these kids are still okay, right? And there's a lot in the unknown that um, intensifies the feeling of discomfort. So I'm really feeling it in my hands. I feel it in my heart when I, I feel it in my throat when, you know, I'm talking about it. So, um, yeah, but what a beautiful story that, you know, you guys brought, you know, to the podcast, though. So I, I feel like um, that's enough to, you know, give voice to a lot of this. So that's what I'm feeling right now. Thank you, Arlene, Omar, for being the safe space for us to share how our discomfort feels and just naming it. And, and for us to be sharing it so publicly is very vulnerable and intimate. And just my hope for our listeners is to invite you to just even take that moment for yourself if that's what's safe enough right now. Is just notice in your own body, where is that discomfort? And just naming it, acknowledging that. You know, I think part of this conversation and exploration is just around empathy and compassion and how our feelings are always personal, but they don't always have to be private. And, you know, and I think that's what dialogue and conversation allows is like, allows a window into you know someone else's experience um, to understand what it might be like to walk in someone else's shoe um, and just you know be present um, and you know I always have to fix save you know just even showing empathy and compassion and understanding you know sometimes that's enough and hearing you both share too it kind of made my uh, shoulders drop a little and I feel my heart kind of lightening up. So even though we don't have any answers, <laughs> I, I'm feeling like, oh, like a little exhale happening. So thank you both for, for you know, being in this conversation. Hmm. Well, here's to discomfort and discovery. Thank you all. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.